Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Foss Corporation, LLC. Hello, my Mysterians. This is Terry from Texas, your presenter. Welcome back to another episode of Terry's Mysterious Moments. Last episode, I presented a story about a plane that was crashed after chasing what appeared to be a UFO. Yes, the pilot was killed, and that was back in the 50s. It's called the Mantell Incident, and it happened uh, over Kentucky, I believe it was. And this time is what I consider to be a part two of that story, which I originally entitled, Are UFOs Eating Our Airplanes? And I'm sorry if that's a flippant comment, But the question is, what happens to airplanes that chase UFOs and aren't crashed or destroyed otherwise, but simply disappear? This week, I want to talk about First Lieutenant Felix Eugene Moncla, Jr. He was born in 1926 and he was presumed dead in 1953. What does presumed dead mean? They couldn't find his body. They couldn't find wreckage of the airplane that he was flying, or his second-seater. Monclo was a pilot who disappeared while performing an air defense intercept over Lake Superior in 1953. His disappearance is sometimes known as the Kinross Incident after Kinross Air Force Base, where Moncla was on temporary assignment at the time he vanished. The USAF, United States Air Force, reported that Moncla had crashed into Lake Superior while tracking a Royal Canadian Air Force, RCAF, C-47 aircraft, which was off course. According to the report, the pilot of the Canadian aircraft did not know he was the subject of interception. Felix Moncla was born in Mansoura, Louisiana on October 21, 1926. He also had two older sisters, Leonie and Muriel Ann. Moncla attended high school in Moreauville and upon graduating from high school accepted an athletic scholarship to Southwest Louisiana Institute where he played football and received his Bachelor of Science degree. After graduation, he enlisted in the United States Army and served during World War II as part of the occupation force of Japan. After his service, Moncla attended the University of New Orleans, but re-enlisted in the military at the start of the Korean War in 1950, this time joining the United States Air Force as an officer pilot trainee. After spending a few months at a desk job in Dallas, Texas, 
Moncla was sent to Connolly Air Force Base in Waco for basic pilot training, where he met and married Bobby Jean Coleman. Now, Connolly Air Force Base, I believe, was turned into a technical school called Texas State Technical Institute. My oldest brother went there, who oddly enough had the same birthday of October 21st. But TSDI has now upgraded to become something else. Uh, I don't know what the name of it is now, but that's just an interesting side note for us Texans. He was at Connolly for basic pilot training where he met and married Bobby Jean Coleman. He took his advanced pilot training at Reese Air Force Base in Lubbock and further training on the F-89 Scorpion at Tyndall Air Force Base in Panama City, Florida. In Panama City, Bobby Jean gave birth to their first son. In July of 1952, Moncla and his family moved to Madison, Wisconsin and had a daughter born five months before Moncla's disappearance. On the evening of November 23, 1953, Air Defense Command ground intercept radar operators at Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan identified an unusual target over Lake Superior near the Sioux Locks. So they dispatched an F-89C Scorpion jet from Kinross Air Force Base to investigate the radar return. The Scorpion was piloted by First Lieutenant Monkla with Second Lieutenant Robert Wilson acting as the Scorpion's radar operator. Wilson had a difficult time tracking the object on the Scorpion's radar so ground radar operators gave Moncla directions toward the object as he flew. Moncla eventually closed in on the object at about 8,000 feet in altitude. Ground control tracked the Scorpion and the unidentified object as two blips on the radar screen. The two blips on the radar screen grew closer and closer until they seemed to merge. Assuming that Moncla had flown either under or over the target, Ground Control anticipated that moments later the Scorpion and the object would again appear as two separate objects. But there was a fear that the two objects had struck one another. But the single blip continued on its previous course. Attempts were made to contact Moncla via radio without success. A search and rescue operation by both the USAF and the Royal Canadian Air Force was quickly mounted, but failed to find any trace of the plane or its pilots. Weather conditions were a factor in hampering the search. The official USAF accident investigation report states the F-89 was sent to investigate an RCAF C-47 Skytrain, which was traveling off course. The F-89 was flying at an elevation of 8,000 feet when it merged with the other aircraft as was expected in an in interception. The thing is, on the radar of the time, if the two objects got close enough together, they would become one blip instead of two. They, they would not be distinguishable. Its IFF signal also disappeared after the two returns merged on the radar scope. Although efforts to contact the crew on radio were unsuccessful, the pilot of another F-89 sent on the search stated in testimony to the accident board that he believed he had heard a brief radio transmission from the pilot about 40 minutes after the plane disappeared. 
USAF investigators reported that Moncla may have experienced vertigo and crashed into Lake Superior. The U.S. Air Force said that Moncla had been known to experience vertigo from time to time. Additional leads uncovered during this later course of the investigation indicated that there might be a possibility that Lieutenant Moncla was subject to attacks of vertigo a little more than the normal degree. Upon pursuing these leads, it was discovered that statements had been made by former members of Lieutenant Moncla's organization, but were not first-hand evidence and were regarded as hearsay. Pilot vertigo is not listed as a cause or possible cause in any of the USAF Accident Investigation Board's findings or conclusions. The official accident report states that when the unknown return was first picked up on radar, it was believed to be an RCAF aircraft VC-912, but it was classified as unknown because it was off its flight plan by 30 miles. The assertion was emphatically denied by the pilot of the, the RCAF flight, Gerald Fosberg, when he was interviewed for the David Cherniak documentary, The Moncla Memories, produced for Vision TV's Enigma series. He was quoted as saying, Oh, hey, no way, that wasn't me. I wasn't flying that airplane, not that close to them. We didn't veer off course, no way, hoser. I'm sorry, that is not real. That was just me. Forgive me. According to UFO writer Donald Kehoe in his 1955 book, The Flying Saucer Conspiracy, he received a telephone call telling him of a rumor out at Selfridge Field that an F-89 from Kinross was hit by a flying saucer. But a follow-up call to Public Information Officer Lieutenant Robert C. White revealed that the unknown in that case was a Canadian DC-3. It was over the locks by mistake. The locks refers to the restricted airspace over the Sioux locks at Sault Ste. Marie on the U.S.-Canadian border at the southeast end of Lake Superior. It is possible that aircraft parts found near the eastern shore of Lake Superior in late October of 1968 were from the missing F-89. A USAF officer confirmed the parts were from a military jet aircraft and news reports speculated these might be from Moncla's F-89. The identity of the parts was never published and the Canadian government states they have no record of the find. According to a story circulated among UFO buffs on the internet in 2006, a group of Michigan divers calling themselves the Great Lakes Dive Company discovered Moncla's F-89 at the bottom of Lake Superior in the approximate location where the jet had disappeared from radar. This wound up being a hoax and was labeled as such as no evidence was ever produced. Unlike the Mantell incident, the Kinross case attracted minimal newspaper coverage. Also, unlike Mantell, Kinross has never been satisfactorily explained. Later, after writer Donald Kehoe broke the story in his best-selling The Flying Saucer Conspiracy, the Air Force insisted that the UFO had proved on investigation, as I said, to be a Royal Canadian Air Force C-47. The F-89C had not actually collided with the Canadian transport plane, but something unspecified had happened and the interceptor crashed. Aside from implying woeful incompetence on the radar operator's part, 
This explanation, which is still the official one, flies in the face of the Canadian government's repeated denials that any such incident involving one of its aircraft ever took place. In 1958, Kehoe got hold of a, a leaked Air Force document that made it clear that officialdom considered the Kinross incident a UFO encounter of the strangest kind. The document quoted these words from a radar observer who had been there. It seems incredible, but the blip apparently just swallowed our F-89. The following year, in conversations with civilian ufologists Tom Comella and Edgar Smith, Master Sergeant O.D. Hill of Project Blue Book confided that such incidents, and he claimed Kinross had not been the only one, had officials worried. Many, he said, believed UFOs to be of an extraterrestrial origin and wanted to prevent an interplanetary Pearl Harbor. Comella subsequently confronted Hill's superior, Captain George T. Gregory, at Blue Book headquarters. Gregory looked shocked, left the room for a short period, and returned to state, Well, we just cannot talk about those cases. So, if UFOs been eating our planes? Now, military aircraft are not the only ones that disappear regarding UFOs. Uh, take This one's not really a UFO story, but take the Flight 19 incident, which is blamed on the Bermuda Triangle, but some people blame underwater UFOs for taking them down. I don't know. And like I said in last week's show, the opening, I mean, the closing sequence of of uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind when the mothership lands and opens up, and there are the pilots from Flight 19 coming off the mothership. I don't know if it was related to UFOs or not. Uh, nobody seems to know what happened, or at least they're not saying they do. Anyway, jump forward from 1953 to... 1978, a young man named Frederick Valentich, who was an Australian pilot, disappeared while on a 125 nautical mile training flight in a Cessna 182L light aircraft registered VHDSJ over the Bass Strait between Australia and Tasmania. On the evening of Saturday, the 21st of October, 1978, 20-year-old Valentich informed Melbourne Air Traffic Control that he was being accompanied by an aircraft about 1,000 feet above him and that his engine had begun running roughly before finally reporting, it's not an aircraft. There were belated reports of a UFO sighting in Australia on the night of his disappearance and the, the Associated Press reported that the Department of Transport was skeptical a UFO was behind Valentich's disappearance and that some of the officials speculated that Valentich simply became disoriented and saw his own lights reflected in the water or lights from a nearby island while flying upside down. Forgive me, but if I'm in a small airplane and I get turned upside down, I think the effects of gravity are going to let me know that something is definitely off. But that's just me. Frederick Valentich 
had about 150 total hours flying time and held a class 4 instrument rating which authorized him to fly at night but only in visual meteorological conditions that means good weather he had twice applied to enlist in the Royal Australian Air Force but was rejected because of inadequate educational qualifications he was a member of the RAAF Air Training Corps determined to have a career in aviation Valentich was studying part-time to become a commercial pilot also but had a poor achievement record having twice failed all five commercial license examination subjects and as recently as the month before his disappearance had failed three more commercial license subjects he had been involved in flying incidents for example straying into a control zone in Sydney for which he received a warning and twice deliberately flying into a cloud for which prosecution was being considered According to his father Guido, Valentich was an ardent believer in UFOs and had been worried about being attacked by them. Kind of throws a red flag up. If you believe in something so heavily, you're going to see it or, or be open to seeing it quite regularly. I remember when I was looking to get my first car, I was interested in Camaros. And that's all I ever picked out on the highway was a Camaro. And I was even asked, well, couldn't that be a Firebird? No, it was a Camaro. I recognize Camaros. I know what they look like. So I'm thinking if, if you're really into UFOs, you'll see them eventually. I was into UFOs in high school, and I saw two and possibly the effects of a third. The destination of Valentich's final flight was King Island, but his motivation for the flight is unknown. He told flight officials that he was going to King Island to pick up some friends, while he told others that he was going to pick up some crawfish. They pronounced it crayfish. But you and I, folks here in the South, and others who like mud bugs know them as crawfish. Later investigations found both stated reasons to be untrue. Valentich had also failed to inform King Island Airport of his intention to land there, going against standard procedure. Valentich radioed Melbourne Flight Service at 7.06 p.m. to report that an unidentified aircraft was following him at 4,500 feet. He was told there was no known traffic at that level. Valentich said he could see a large unknown aircraft which appeared to be illuminated by four bright landing lights. He was unable to confirm its type but said it passed about a thousand feet overhead and was moving at high speed. Valentich then reported the aircraft was approaching him from the east and said the other pilot might be purposely toying with him. Valentich said the aircraft was orbiting above him and had a shiny metal surface and a green light on it. Valentich further reported that he was experiencing engine problems. Asked to identify the aircraft, Valentich radioed, It's not an aircraft. His transmission was then interrupted by unidentified noise described as metallic scraping sounds before all contact was lost. They did indeed perform a search and rescue and it was undertaken including ocean-going ship traffic, a Lockheed P-3 Orion from the 
Royal Australian Air Force, plus eight civilian aircraft. The search encompassed over 1,000 square miles. Search efforts ceased on October 25th of 1978 without result. Interesting enough, this is the second incident that uh, involved the date October 21st. The investigation into his disappearance by Australian Department of Transport was unable to determine, determine the cause, but it was presumed fatal for Valentich. Five years after Valentich's aircraft went missing, an engine cowl flap was found washed ashore on Flinders Island. Flinders Island is between Australia and Tasmania, about 150 miles or so east of Kings Island, which was his destination. In July of 83, the Bureau of Air Safety Investigation asked the Royal Australian Navy Research Laboratory about the likelihood that the cow flap might have traveled to its ultimate position from the region where the aircraft disappeared. The Bureau noted that the part had, has been identified as having come from a Cessna 182 aircraft between a certain range of serial numbers, which included Valentich's aircraft. It's been proposed that Valentich staged his own disappearance, even taking into account a trip of between 30 and 45 minutes to Cape Otway. The single-engine Cessna 182 still had enough fuel to fly at 500 miles. Despite ideal conditions, at no time was the aircraft plotted on radar, casting doubts on whether it was ever near Cape Otway. Melbourne police re received reports of a light aircraft making a mysterious landing not far from Cape Otway at the same time as Valentich's disappearance. Another proposed explanation is that Valentich became disoriented while flying upside down. Therefore, the lights he thought he saw were reflections of his own craft on the water. However, the model Cessna he was piloting could not have been flown upside down for long as it has a gravity feed fuel system, meaning that the engine would have cut out very quickly. Yet another proposed possibility is suicide. However, interviews with doctors and colleagues who knew him virtually eliminated that possibility. In a 2013 review of the radio transcripts and other data by astronomer and retired United States Air Force pilot James Magaha and author Joe Nickel proposes the inexperienced Valentich was deceived by the illusion of a tilted horizon for which he attempted to compensate and inadvertently put his aircraft into a downward so-called graveyard spiral which he initially mistook for simply orbiting of the aircraft. According to the authors, the g-forces of a tightening spiral would decrease the fuel flow, resulting in a rough idling, reported by Valentich. Magaha and Nickel also proposed that the apparently stationary overhead lights that Valentich reported were probably the planets Venus, Mars, and Mercury, along with the bright star Antares, which would have behaved in a way consistent with Valentich's description. So ufologists believe that extraterrestrials either destroyed Valentich's aircraft or abducted him, taking a whole shooting match. 
They say this because some individuals reported seeing an erratically moving green light in the sky and that he was in a steep dive at the time. UFOlogists believe these accounts are significant because of the green light mentioned in Valentich's radio transmissions. So, are UFOs eating our aircraft? That's a good question. For the pilots in the military aircrafts that are lost and or disappear when dealing with UFO reports, it's a tough job for the family to get through because there's very rarely closure unless the plane is crashed. For someone like Frederick Valentich, it's tough for the family to get through because again, there's no body, no evidence of the plane going down, anything. So closure is impossible. Do UFOs exist? Yes, I believe UFOs exist. And I'm, I'm of the age where I'm still going to call them UFOs, not unidentified aerial phenomena. I saw one just before sunset in the summertime back when I was in high school. And it was a silver ball in the sky and suddenly something shot out from that silver ball to the north went out a ways and then came back like a kid playing with a yo-yo. Another time I was in a drive-in theater and I saw what I can only describe as a flying wing or for those that are really crazy about UFOs, the triangular craft quietly fly over the above the drive-through I mean the drive-in and we could see the underside as it passed over the screen. There was a guy with me. We were watching the movie, and he saw it too. But I don't know that anybody else responded to it. And the third one was when I was a kid, I saw a light shining on my garage out of my bedroom window. I mean, out from my bedroom window. And it was coming from the west. And when I looked out the windows to the west, there was nothing producing light out that way. So we don't know where the light was coming from, but it was definitely coming from the west. Do I believe in UFOs? Yes, I believe in them, because I've seen them. Do I, can I explain them? No, I can't. Because, you know, it's just a very short time, a long time ago. I didn't report them because I didn't know you could. Do I believe in aliens? Eh, not so much. I realize there's got to be something in charge of those craft, but I don't know how to justify little gray men with big heads and funky eyes flying around in aircraft. Now, they can't be all that intelligent. They keep crashing their stupid ships. But uh, I think there are UFOs out there. I don't know what they are. They may be natural objects. They may be shoot they may be planets and other things i don't know that's what i have for this week i appreciate you listening to me uh thanks for coming back to terry's mysterious moments and i hope you'll come back again be safe this week have a good week and we'll see you next time on terry's mysterious moments bye-bye